the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Among other things, we're going to talk with Craig Springer. He's the author of How to Revive Evangelism, Seven Vital Shifts in How We Share Our Faith. And it's important to mention that he is the executive director of Alpha USA. And if you're not familiar with the program, it runs over 6,500 in 6,500 churches all across every major denomination, 500 prisons throughout the country. He's the author of uh, How to Follow Jesus. He's been a leader and a pastor in influential churches in Chicago and Denver. He's currently in Colorado, and we're going to talk with him about new trends in evangelism, unless you, you suggest that, you know, what trends do we need to consider? Uh, he embraces and holds to the gospel and points our attention back to Jesus and his methods and how um, we can approach millennials in this new age that we find ourselves in. Anyway, that's all coming up in the second half hour of this first hour of today's program. First, taking a look at some of the day's news, Oregon Governor Kate Brown today extended Oregon's state of emergency declaration for another 60 days. It's going to continue until the 28th of June. Well, that declaration authorizes legally uh, the governor's COVID-19 executive orders and the Oregon Health Authority's health and safety guidance. It extends that declaration and it allows those orders to remain in effect. Well, the governor and officials at OHA, they've said Oregon is in the midst of a fourth surge of COVID-19. And this week she announced, as you probably know, that 15 Oregon counties will move back to the extreme COVID-19 risk level uh, as of tomorrow. Well, there have been 182,916 known cases of COVID in Oregon, and the state's COVID death toll, 2,490. Over the past um, two weeks, Oregon's coronavirus cases have jumped by more than 50 percent, and that's the fastest increase in COVID-19 cases in the country. The full text of the governor's statement, and I'm quoting, we are in the middle of the fourth surge of COVID-19 in Oregon, driven by more contagious variants of the disease. We must stop hospitalizations from spiking so we can save lives, help our nurses and doctors weather this surge, and ensure no Oregonian is, is denied vital health care. Tomorrow, 15 counties are moving to the extreme risk level, with nine more in high risk. Hospitalizations nearly doubled in the last two weeks to well over 300. At this time last year, again, quoting from the governor, there was so much we did uh, not know about how to stop the spread of this disease, this deadly disease. Now, more than a year into COVID-19, the pandemic, Oregonians know the best ways to avoid spreading infection, limiting gatherings when cases are high, wearing face coverings, maintaining physical distance, staying home when sick, and most uh, importantly, getting vaccinated as soon as possible. We just have to hold on for a few weeks longer. Well few weeks longer. She goes on to say, I intend to fully reopen our economy by the end of June, and this day is approaching when my emergency orders can eventually be lifted. How quickly we get there is up to each and every one of us doing our part. Over 1.7 million Oregonians have received at least one dose of vaccine, and over 1.2 million are fully vaccinated against 
this deadly disease. But the overwhelming majority of our new COVID-19 cases are from people who have not yet been vaccinated. Younger, unvaccinated Oregonians are now showing up in our hospitals with severe cases of COVID-19. Right now, more than ever, as we see the path over the peak of the spring surge and uh, down the other side, we need Oregonians to step up and take on the personal responsibility to get vaccinated. Vaccinations are the best way to protect yourself, your friends, your loved ones. They are also the quickest path toward lifting restrictions. Today, I am lifting Oregon's executive order for price gouging related to the pandemic because the days of hand sanitizer and, yes, toilet paper scarcity are far behind us. In the weeks to come, as the number of fully vaccinated Oregonians continues to grow, we will be able to lift the emergency orders and state regulations that have kept us safe for the past year. Now, there are still some things I can't find on the shelves. I don't know if uh, because they were made in China, we don't have access to them. If the manufacturers here in this country are simply not in a position uh, to produce those items. But there is scarcity in some areas, but not like we saw early on when people were pretty much panicked about what to expect in the days ahead. So the governor has spoken and we have several more weeks of the uh, lockdown as we've known it here in the state of Oregon. In other news, they're telling us don't skip your second COVID shot, and here's why. Nearly 8% of Americans who received the first dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine didn't get their second shot, and uh, there's a reason why the second dose is so important. In fact, KGW reports that nearly uh, 8% of the people who received that first one, and we're speaking of the Pfizer or the Moderna uh, coronavirus vaccine have missed their second uh, shot. And that's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's nationally. And that means more than 5 million people didn't receive that second COVID shot. Well, in Oregon, we're doing a bit better than the national average, according to the latest numbers. Fewer than 5% of people who received their first Pfizer or Moderna shot didn't get the second dose within eight weeks. In Washington, health officials say approximately 13% of people are more than one week overdue for their second shot. In Clark and Cowlitz counties, that number is higher, with Clark County showing 16% of people more than a week overdue, and Cowlitz County, 18% overdue by more than a week. Well, in a press conference uh, yesterday morning, Washington health officials said that they analyzed overdue shots differently than the CDC data that showed Americans have skipped second-dose appointments at a rate of 8%. The Department of Health said that um, if it were to use the same calculation as the CDC, the missed second-dose rate in Washington would be closer to 45 There could be several reasons why people are skipping that second shot that include concerns about the second dose side effects, thinking the first shot offers sufficient protection. Uh, Dr. Don Nolt, who's a pediatric infectious disease specialist at OHSU, um, understands why it's so important uh, to have that full vaccine. And Dr. Nolt says that one dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine may seem effective in the short term, but receiving the second dose is crucial for long-term immunity. And I'm not sure that word applies as we're hearing different versions of uh, one's susceptibility. You may have a high level of protection after the first dose, but that protection drops off very sharply in a few weeks. The second dose allows that protection to be revitalized and to last a lot longer. There have been some reports that side effects are more severe after the second dose, but Dr. Nolt says side effects are not a bad sign. Having some side effects after the vaccine 
um, really is a normal reaction and shows that your body is building up protection. The immune system also causes inflammation, and that's why at the site of your shot, you may get a little uh, soreness, and that's the immune system causing inflammation, which is a good thing. And what if you feel no side effects at all? Is the vaccine still working? Well, according to Dr. Nolte, she says, yes, there are a lot of reasons why people may or may not have this or that side effect, but in the end, the protection will be very good. Well, Dan Rice had both of his shots. Uh, he had a little soreness in the arm after the first shot. He um, was very tired but didn't have any other ill effects. My mother, 90 years old, had both of her shots, the second being on Sunday. Uh, she had nothing. She didn't feel the shot when it was given. She didn't have any soreness where at the site of the shot. She didn't have any fever. It didn't feel ill, wasn't overly tired, and she went through the whole thing with flying colors. Now, I had a doctor's appointment just yesterday at which point I asked my doctors, given some of my health challenges at this point, whether or not I should move forward. I was reluctant because uh, I'm on some medications that I was concerned might not interact well with the uh, uh, the vaccine. And she confirmed that, yeah, you really need to wait um, and has cleared me to pursue that in about four weeks when some of the stronger medications, I will be weaned off of them, uh, Lord willing. So uh, I haven't had either one of them yet, but I'm prepared uh, to do so. So there you have it. Also in the state of Oregon, six earthquakes struck between 150 and 200 miles off the Oregon coast this morning following an earthquake in the same location Wednesday afternoon. That's according to the U.S. Geological Survey. Survey rather, There's no tsunami threat from any of the quakes, according to the U.S. National Tsunami Warning Center. Wednesday's 4.4 magnitude earthquake happened at about 2.36 p.m., about 182 miles northwest of Bandon. The quake had a depth of about 6.2 miles. All six of today, this morning's earthquakes, happened within about 50 miles of each other, according to the USGS map. And they chart the latest earthquakes. Well, Thursday morning's first earthquake, a 4.3 magnitude quake, struck at 3.25 a.m., followed by a 5.4 quake uh, at 3.30 a.m., a 5.2 quake at 3.35 a 5.3 earthquake at 3.58 a.m., and a 4.1 earthquake at 6.25 a.m., and a 3.8 earthquake at about 6.33 a.m. Well, the U.S. Geological uh, Survey reported all the earthquakes had a depth of about six miles. Um, KGW's meteorologist Rod Hill points out that this is nothing unusual, nothing alarming, nothing to worry about, but it's kind of interesting when we have these little clusters of earthquake activity. Well, according to the USGS, there are were rather 13 reports from people who said they felt at least one of the earthquakes Thursday morning. Nobody reported feeling Wednesday's quake at all. It's just apparently one of those things. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, the new numbers for the state of Oregon, 928 new cases, one death. That's uh, reported for today regarding COVID-19. Also want to remind you coming up for our next two segments, we'll talk with Craig Springer. He's the executive director of Alpha USA. He's also the author of How to Revive Evangelism, Seven Vital Shifts and How We Share Our Faith. The book is published by Zondervan and it's a partnership with Barna uh, in what they've discovered about evangelism today, what's effective, what isn't, and how some of um, the uh, patterns that we have uh, used in the past and are familiar are no longer effective and why we need to uh, uh, to reconsider our approach. That's coming up in the next two segments. 
Well, President Biden laid out his vision for rebuilding America through a slew of policy proposals in his first joint address. The president, in his first address before Congress last night, laid out his vision for America through a slew of uh, proposals and a legislative wish list while vowing to work with both Republicans and Democrats to deliver on his agenda. That's a promise he made before the election uh, early on in his administration, but that's yet to be realized. And it seems some of the rhetoric he made uh, both during, before and following the speech uh, would defy that pledge. Well, Biden delivered his address which lasted just over an hour from the House chamber Wednesday night, outlining proposals from continuing to address the coronavirus pandemic to his jobs package to universal preschool, health care, immigration reform, gun control, foreign policy and more. My fellow Americans, the president said, while the setting tonight is familiar, this gathering is just a little bit different. A reminder of the extraordinary times we're in. Biden said upon taking the podium. Well, typically there are approximately 1,600 people at a presidential address of this kind. But due to social distancing requirements with the coronavirus pandemic, only about 200 guests were in attendance, including 80 House members and 60 senators. Well, throughout our history, presidents have come to this chamber to speak to Congress, to the nation and to the world to declare war, to celebrate peace, to announce new plans and possibilities. Biden said, tonight I come to talk about crisis and opportunity, about rebuilding the nation, revitalizing our democracy, which is actually a constitutional republic, and winning the future for America. As I stand here tonight, we are just one day shy of the 100th day of my administration, 100 days since I took the oath of office, lifted my hand off my our family Bible, and inherited a nation we all did that was in crisis. Biden said, pointing to the coronavirus pandemic, the economic downfall brought on by the pandemic and the assault on the Capitol on the 6th of January, which he described as the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Now, after just 100 days, I can report to the nation America is on the move again, turning peril into possibility, crisis into opportunity, set back into strength, he said. Well, the president failed to mention the crisis on our southern border. Uh, which he slipped at one point some weeks ago, referring to it as a crisis, but immediately walking that back because his handlers had decided they're not going to make that admission. In other developments, Howard Kurtz, Biden's uh, said rather, Biden's low energy speaks, uh, pushed a costly agenda, but doesn't change the conversation. And the slur against Senator Tim Scott trending on Twitter was left to languish there for 11 hours before it was pulled, referring to him as Uncle Tim. Again, he's a Republican, so these kinds of racist slurs are permitted. President Sleepy Joe Biden put Senator Ted Cruz to sleep during the address to Congress, at least according to Senator Cruz. In other news, Andrew Giuliani blasted the FBI raid on his dad's home, calling it absolutely absurd. Andrew Giuliani fiercely defended his father, Rudy, on Wednesday, blasting the FBI raid on the former New York City mayor's home as disgusting and absurd. I'm speaking as a son and a concerned American, Giuliani told reporters outside the Big Apple home of Rudy Giuliani. Anybody, any American, whether you are red or blue, should be extremely disturbed by what happened here today, by the continued politicization of the Justice Department. This is disgusting. It's absolutely absurd. Well, the younger Giuliani's comments came after federal investigators executed a search warrant on Giuliani's home, seizing electronic devices. 
The raid, which was first reported by the New York Times, comes as federal authorities were investigating whether he violated the law by lobbying the Trump administration on behalf of Ukrainian officials in 2019. Giuliani has um, served as former President Donald Trump's personal attorney on a number of high-profile matters as well. Well, according to Giuliani's attorney, Robert Costello, seven FBI agents arrived at the apartment at 6 a.m. on Wednesday and remained for roughly two hours. The agents seized several electronic devices, including laptops and cell phones. Well, the North Carolina DA is arguing that Andrew Brown Jr.'s car struck deputies twice. The family lawyer gave patently false body cam remarks, and the debate continues. Well, the district attorney in North Carolina said the court on, uh, rather in court on Wednesday, that Andrew Brown Jr.'s car made contact with sheriff's deputies twice before law enforcement opened fire, calling comments made earlier this week by one of the attorneys representing Brown's family about what was captured on 20 seconds of body camera footage was patently false. The claim came during a hearing at uh, the county courthouse where Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Foster ruled all body cam fo- footage of the April 21st fatal deputy-involved shooting of Brown will be delayed for public release for at least 30 days. District Attorney Andrew Warm- uh, Womble, he told the judge that video showed Brown's car made contact with deputies twice as he backed out of the driveway of his home in Elizabeth City, North Carolina that day before law uh, enforcement began firing. As it uh, backs up, it does make contact with law enforcement officers, Womble said, adding that the car stops again. The next movement of the car is forward. It is in the direction of law enforcement and makes contact with them. It is then and only then that you hear shots. Well, statements made by attorney Chantel Sherry Lassiter at a press conference earlier this week describing the movements of Brown's car in the video are patently false, Womble added. In other developments, Andrew Brown Jr. protests continue for eight straight nights. Arrests were made. The body cam video public release, again, delayed 30 days. So what is actually seen on them? We'll just have to wait to confirm. Well, Twitter exploded over the Hunter Biden announcement that he will be te- has a teaching gig, rather, at Tulane, saying he should be in jail, not teaching the future. A Delaware police officer has been declared dead after an assault while responding to a call for help. And two North Carolina deputies were shot in a Watauga County standoff, one dead, one trapped in the house at the scene. Well, Verizon is exploring the sale of media assets, including parts of Yahoo and AOL. And Oregon restaurants and bars are slamming the latest indoor dining shutdown, saying we're pretty, well, I'll just call it put out. Well, President Biden's speech was filled with inaccuracies, threats, and spending. He called for free education, both K through 12. He pushed a massive tax increase on what he deems the wealthy. Guy Benson points out that Joe Biden is speaking the words, but this is an Elizabeth Warren economic speech. Biden called the January 6th Capitol riot the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Apparently he's forgotten 911. Uh, the last two, uh, Mark Hemingway points out, the last two Democratic presidents commuted the sentences of left-wing radicals who bombed the Capitol. 9-11 was an attack on our democracy. The Capitol riot was a uh, damnable tragedy, but this is just a baseless and divisive characterization of how bad it was. In a particularly disturbing moment highlighted by many networks as heroic, Biden said, for all transgender Americans watching at home, especially young people, you're so brave. I want you to know your president has your back. In the chamber, there were very few people allowed, and those who were wore masks. 
Ben uh, Dominic points out there is zero scientific basis for Vice President Harris and Speaker Nancy Pelosi wearing masks. Zero. It is science denial for them to do so. Dan McLaughlin says Biden, who's been vaccinated, elbow bumps uh, Pelosi, who's been vaccinated and is wearing a mask, and Harris, who's been vaccinated and is wearing a mask, as if they were lepers he was uh, terrified to touch. Tom Cotton says Joe Biden uh, is like the rooster uh, taking credit for the sun rising. Steve Scalise says that Joe Biden talks about unity and bipartisanship. He promised it at his inauguration, too. But actions speak louder than words. And he governs like a radical, caves to his left-wing base at every turn. He's not fooling anyone. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley says President Biden says he wants bipartisanship, but spent over an hour promoting radical policies that will harm our economy, grow government control, and cause more division. Uh, What uh, a wasted opportunity. And even... uh, Uh, The media uh, mocked Joe Biden for claiming to have traveled over 17,000 miles with Xi Jinping, but instead uh, they dubbed it merely an odd claim. Well, an odd claim that happened to be false. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk with Craig Springer, author of How to Revive Evangelism, Seven Vital Shifts in How We Share Our Faith. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, we had anticipated a conversation with Craig Springer. He's the executive director of Alpha USA. We're still going to have that conversation, but we have some technical difficulties, and that will be at 5 o'clock rather than in this and uh, the next segment. So I hope you'll stick around for that. Craig Springer and the Alpha USA uh, project is really quite fascinating. And this collaboration between uh, Alpha USA and Barna provides some significant insight into our approaches to evangelism in the 21st century, what we can learn from millennials and how we can share our faith in a way that's effective and will bear fruit. So that'll be coming up at five o'clock. President Biden pushed for gun control. He said, among other things, we need a ban on assault weapons and high capacity. Again, don't tell me it can't be done. We did it before. And it worked, end quote. Well, Rich Lowry points out, it'd be nice if there was some acknowledgement that gun violence has drastically increased in major cities with the anti-police agitation of the last year. And Amy Swear took apart uh, Biden's gun uh, statements in a tweet thread. Turns out polls indicate support for gun control is dropping. Back in March, Katie Pavlich took on Biden's uh, making the point that the Clinton era gun ban brought down mass killings. Well, a mere $6 trillion, if you assume he can keep the numbers that low, Biden uh, promising massive spending. Jim Garrity goes through a litany of trillion-dollar spending plans coming from Camp Biden. You heard them in the speech last night. From the Wall Street Journal, the goal is to expand the entitlement state to make Americans rely more heavily on the government and the political class for everything they don't already provide. The White House talking points pitch this in the smothering love of the welfare state, making care affordable, free medical and family leave, free education, two years of universal preschool, invest in the care workforce, well, subsidies and millions of new caregivers, all licensed and unionized, will nurture you through the challenges of um, earning a living and raising a family. You needn't worry about a thing. Meanwhile, Senator Tim Scott, the first African-American U.S. senator to represent a southern state, 
uh, blasted uh, President Biden's speech in a moving response. Senator Scott was much more upbeat about America. Mark Thiessen points out that this is the best, not the State of the Union response I've ever seen. It's a thankless forum, and Senator Tim Scott is nailing it, a rising star. Dan McLaughlin said Biden uh, talked a fair amount about being pro-America, not betting against the USA, not underselling what we could do, arguing we should keep up with China. But Tim Scott actually defended America as good. From Senator McConnell, I am so glad the nation heard uh, Senator Tim Scott's outstanding Republican response to President Biden's address. Republicans stand for the principles and policies that unite Americans and expand opportunity for working families, not radical agendas designed to push us apart. The progressives on Twitter responded with racism targeting uh, Senator Scott, who said America is not a racist nation. By the way, Vice President Kamala Harris agreed, saying the United States is not a racist nation. However, she's a Democrat. She can say that and she gets a pass. Senator uh, Tim Scott is referred to as Uncle Tim, a play on Uncle Tom. Well, the Cuomo administration hid the report of nursing home deaths for months. It's apparently worse than previously reported. From the story, senior staffers buried a scientific paper that reported the number, blocked health officials from releasing the accurate tally, and didn't publicize an audit of the data until months after it was completed, the report alleges. Meanwhile, John Kerry could face a State Department probe. A trio of GOP lawmakers are seeking a full investigation. Oregon City has declared a state of emergency to reject the governor's COVID restrictions. Other cities here in Oregon are also contemplating jumping on board that bandwagon. Well, in government and politics, Republicans are calling for a long overdue investigation into John Kerry. And the Department of Justice quietly has dropped the Trump era policy to withhold federal money from sanctuary cities. Double standards? Well, Epic Times congressional press credentials have been revoked while the Chinese state-run media remains in force. YouTube oligarchs have censored Dan Bongino's uh, interview with President, former President Donald Trump. And Samantha Power has been confirmed by the Senate to lead USAID. Justice Department has indicted three on hate crime charges in the death of Ahmad Arbery, and Socialist Seattle Council members are now worth millions. Meanwhile, more than 200 Seattle police officers have quit over the last year. Well, a creature has been terrorizing a town in Poland. It turns out to be a croissant stuck in a tree. Think about that for a moment. Well, on this day in history, 1861, the Maryland House of Delegates votes 53 to 13 against seceding from the Union. 1861, in Montgomery, Alabama, Jefferson Davis asks the Confederate Congress for the authority to wage war. And war, of course, there was. 2009, the World Trade Organization raises its alert level for swine flu to its next to highest notch. Seems like a small thing in view of where we are today. Well, President Joe Biden declared that America is rising anew as he called for an expansion of federal programs to drive the economy past the coronavirus pandemic and broadly extend the social safety net on a scale not seen in decades. Biden's nationally televised address to Congress, his first, raised the stakes for his ability to sell his plan to voters of both parties, even if Republican lawmakers prove resistance and resist, they will. The Democratic president is following uh, last night's speech by pushing his plans in person, beginning in Georgia today and then on to Pennsylvania and Virginia in the days ahead. Well, in his address, the president pointed optimistically to the nation's emergence from the coronavirus scourge as a moment for America to prove that its democracy can still work and maintain primacy in the world. I think it's a bit premature 
on at least the first point, speaking in highly personal terms while demanding massive structural changes, the president marked his first 100 days, which officially began today in office, by proposing a $1.8 trillion investment in children, families, education to help rebuild an economy devastated by the virus and compete with rising global competitors. The sad news is his proposals will do just the opposite. Well, his speech represented both an audacious vision and a considerable gamble. He's governing with the most slender of majorities in Congress, and even some in his own party have um, blanched at the price tag of his proposals. Pretty hefty. At the same time, the speech highlighted the president's fundamental belief in the power of government as a force for good, even at a time when it is so often the object of scorn. It's sort of that smothering Uh, Good. I can report to the nation, the president said, America is on the move again, turning peril into possibility, crisis into opportunity, setback into strength. I've yet to quite see it, but I'm optimistic and hope that he's right. While the ceremonial setting in the Capitol was the same as usual, the visual images were unlike any previous presidential address. Members of Congress um, wore masks. They were seated apart because of the pandemic. And... uh, Outside the grounds were still surrounded by fencing after insurrectionists in January protesting Biden's election stormed to the doors of the House uh, where he gave his address. And they have milked that and made more much out of it to their own political advantage. Individuals involved are being and should be held accountable, uh, but so should others in events that preceded that one in particular. Well, Oregon State um, Governor Brown has extended Oregon's state of emergency declaration for another 60 days. That came as something of a disappointment among many. We'll talk more about that later in the program. Uh, But uh, President Biden says that white supremacists have replaced jihadists as the most lethal terrorist threat in the U.S. I have to tell you, I'm an African-American. I've seen my share of racism, but I do not believe the president is right in making that statement. Labeled terrorism by white supremacists, the most lethal terrorist threat to the U.S. during his address to the joint session of Congress on Wednesday. Seems to me Biden has overstated the case. Is there racism in the United States? Absolutely. Uh, Is it systematic? I believe it is not. Uh, Does it need to be dealt with when it rears its ugly head? Absolutely. But this outrageous statement um, needs to be confronted. The president said, make no mistake, the terrorist threat has evolved beyond Afghanistan since 2001, and we will remain vigilant against threats to the United States wherever they come from. Al-Qaeda and ISIS are in Yemen, Syria, Somalia, and other places in Africa, and the Middle East and beyond. He said in a prepared uh, statement, and we won't ignore what our own intelligence agencies have determined. The most lethal terrorist threats to the homeland today is from white supremacist terrorism, Biden added in his remarks. Now, why uh, anarchists, for example, who have destroyed physical property and resulted in the deaths of many Americans is not on that list? Are they referring to uh, racism in general, Um, anarchists in particular? Only white supremacists. So, again, it's a very narrow perspective on a very broad set of concerns among those uh, who are unwilling to follow the rules. He delivered his speech to Congress. He slightly departed from the prepared script, saying that white supremacy is terrorism. It echoed comments by FBI Director Christopher Wray in March in congressional testimony saying the problem of domestic terrorism has been metastasizing across the country for a long time now, and it's not going away anytime soon. Now, he didn't narrow it to white supremacy, uh, but those who are opposed to um, perhaps on race, but anarchists and others um, as well. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, looking at the time we need to take a break, but we'll be back and continue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We've been talking, of course, about the president's um, address to a joint session of downsized Congress uh, on Wednesday night, nearly 100 days into his presidency, which technically um, begins or ends today. Uh, a look at some of the instances where setting the record straight may help those evaluating the speech. Uh, the president made reference to protecting the sacred right to vote. And if we are to truly restore the soul of America, he said, we need to protect the sacred right to vote. More people voted in the last presidential election than ever before in our history. In the middle of one of the worst pandemics ever, that should be celebrated instead of being attacked. Well, part of the problem is some of those who voted and make up that large number should not have. Anyway, about 160 million Americans voted in the presidential election, a record number, according to USA Today. But conservatives say the left is out to nationalize elections by giving the federal government control over local and state elections. What the president apparently meant when he said voter turnout is being attacked, congressional Democrats uh, legislation, which they call the For the People Act, would override states authority to conduct their elections, mandate no fault absentee ballots and make it easier to commit fraud and promote chaos at the polls through same day registration. That's according to a backgrounder from the Heritage Foundation. Now, Democrats legislation known as the House uh, Bill H.R. 1 and in the Senate S. 1 also would mandate that states allow 16- and 17-year-olds to register to vote. And this move, when combined with a ban on voter ID and restrictions on the ability to challenge the eligibility of a voter, would effectively ensure that underage individuals could vote with impunity. The Daily Signal is the multimedia news organization at the Heritage Foundation. And they point out that the legislation also would provide taxpayer money for candidates for federal office, require nonprofits to disclose donors, a mandate that states allow voter registration on Election Day, allow felons to vote and allow ballots to be counted outside voters' home districts or precincts. Congress should pass H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and send them to my desk, the president said last night. The country supports it. Congress should act, end quote. Well, the president is partly correct on that point. An Associated Press poll in April found that about half of those surveyed said they support expanding access to early mail-in voting, which H.R. 1 and S. 1 would do. However, the legislation also would eliminate most state voter ID laws, which require anyone who wants to vote to first show a recognized form of identification. Another uh, fact check uh, is uh, that tax cuts added $2 trillion to the deficit. Look at the big tax cut of 2017. It was supposed to pay for itself and generate vast economic growth. Instead, it added $2 trillion to the deficit. Well, in his speech, the president pushed for tax increases for high earners and corporations and took a shot at the tax reform law passed by Congress and signed by President Donald Trump just before Christmas in 2017. Um, as noted uh, in the Daily Signal last month, the Trump tax cut did not pay for itself, but the tax cuts were not the cause of the budget deficit. The tax cuts helped to grow the economy, but not enough to shrink the deficit, which is caused by spending, former um, tax expert uh, Michael or Adam Michelle noted in that analysis. Well, annual budget deficits primarily, they're the result of a systematic gap between revenues and expenditures uh, resulting from sustained growth in a, man- uh, a, a mandatory spending program since the 70s. Well, if Congress o- undergoes the 2017 tax cuts, the deficit would continue to grow. The tax cuts represent only about 16% of the pre-pandemic budget deficit. The projected annual deficit in 2030 is bigger than the entire 10-year loss of the Trump cuts 
from 2017. Well, after the tax cuts, the economy grew, the labor market improved, the wages increased by more than a percentage point in the two subsequent years, resulting in annual wages of more than $1,400 above trend for production and non-supervisory workers. New job openings increased in 2018. About 83,000 more Americans voluntarily left their jobs for better opportunities at the end of 2019 and before the COVID-19 pandemic struck in early 2020. Well, according to data from the Internal Revenue Service, Americans in every income group benefited from lower effective tax rates, which dropped 1.4 percentage points in uh, 2018. Well, the tax cuts that took effect in 2018 as a percentage of taxes paid in the previous year were largest uh, for the lowest income Americans, smallest for the top 1% of earners, and that means high income Americans now pay a larger share of income taxes than they did before the Trump tax cut. So getting that right is important. Well, the president said in his speech, corporations must pay their fair share. I will not quoting from the president, impose any tax increases on people making less than $400,000 a year. We're going to reform corporate taxes so they, corporations, pay their fair share and help pay for the public investments their businesses will benefit from. Between 75 and 100% of corporate tax increases are passed on to workers through lower wages, less investment. And that's according to past analysis from Congress Joint Committee on Taxation, the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Tax Analysis, and the Congressional Budget Office. Now, these estimates, they indicate that even without tax heights for people making less than $400,000 a year, they would be affected by higher taxes on other Americans. And then the president's reference to the epidemic of gun violence. So-called ghost guns are homemade guns built from a kit that includes the directions on how to finish the firearm. The parts have no serial numbers, so when they show up on a crime scene, they can't be traced. Well, the president noted that he already has called for a ban on ghost guns, asked Senate Republicans to close loopholes on background checks to purchase a gun, and again, ban high-capacity magazines. I will do everything in my power, the president said, to protect the American people from this epidemic of gun violence, but it's time for Congress to act as well. Well, gun crimes actually are down from the early 90s, when Congress passed several gun control laws, according to the Pew Research Center. Amy Swearer, a legal fellow at, again at Heritage, wrote, Neither regulating ghost guns nor making gun owners pay a $200 tax for pistol arms abrases um, meaningfully addresses root causes of gun violence. These actions are, in fact, far more likely to turn responsible gun owners into felons than to prevent a single gun death. And adding millions of jobs, the American Jobs Plan creates jobs to upgrade our transportation infrastructure, jobs modernizing streets, bridges and highways, jobs building ports and airports, rail corridors and transit lines, the president uh, said. Well, despite calling his proposal an infrastructure bill, less than 6% of the spending in it would go to building or repairing roads, bridges or other projects typically associated with infrastructure. Referring to a White House summary Uh, An analysis said that proposed American jobs plan with a price tag of about $2 trillion would spend only $115 billion to modernize bridges, highways, and roads. 
a more broad definition allowing for infrastructure resilience, Amtrak, broadband, airports, uh, road safety, stretches uh, infrastructure spending to $750 billion. Well, the proposed uh, proposal rather includes hundreds of billions in other spending, like $400 billion for home-based elder care, $35 billion for climate change research, $50 billion for research infrastructure at the National Science Foundation, and $215 billion for home sustainability and public housing. And then on the subject of vaccinating the nation, the president said, we're vaccinating the nation after I promised 100 million COVID-19 vaccine shots in 100 days. We will have provided over 220 million COVID shots in 100 days. Well, of course, that is the residual of the organization and plan put in place by the previous administration. But I suppose it's not altogether surprising that the current administration would take credit for what the previous administration accomplished. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break. In just a few moments, we'll have um, uh, a conversation with Craig Springer. But now, news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I think it's probably true that most of us want to share our faith and do so effectively. We might be a little timid. We might not quite know how to approach it. But we might have been trained some years ago and follow the same patterns that we were taught from the last century. Well, in a recent joint study released by Barna Group and Alpha USA, they determined that 47 percent of millennial Christians believe sharing their faith is wrong. In a post-Christian, post-modern, post-truth world where the evangelism approaches of the past are increasingly ineffective, my next guest, author and executive director of of um, Alpha USA, Craig Springer, believes that reaching non-Christians is still possible. The question is, how? We have to consider the unique cultural moment in which we're living and adapt. Well, today's Christians need a compelling way to share our faith that combines the timeless practices of Jesus with timely perspectives about our post-everything era. Well, in his book, How to Revive Evangelism, he shares data from the 2019 study, Reviving Evangelism, insights gleaned from the report, and how returning to the often overlooked evangelistic approaches of Jesus himself are key to reviving evangelism in the 21st century. Incorporating the groundbreaking data offers a pretty solid foundation for the seven shifts that he outlines. Well, Craig Springer, as I mentioned, is the executive director of Alpha USA. It's a program that runs in over 6,000 churches across every major denomination, 500 prisons throughout the country, and Alpha mobilizes about 50,000 volunteers, 365,000 participants annually in the U.S., and over 1.3 million globally. It's a simple idea of great meal, short talk, and a meaningful discussion about the life and faith uh, over 10 weeks. It's for people with questions, frustrations, serious doubts about spirituality, the church, uh, the direction of their lives, or anything in between. Again, uh, Craig joins us to talk about How to Revive Evangelism, uh, the book that he uh, has authored. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is so timely and fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, collaboration between Alpha USA and Barna? Yes, absolutely. We studied the state of evangelism in the United States and released a monograph called Reviving Evangelism. We compared and contrasted evangelism expectations and experiences of Christians and non-Christians. And we sort of looked for the gaps. You know, where are Christians missing what non-Christians are saying would be helpful and effective? And we pulled out these seven shifts. And then I released the book, How to Revive Evangelism as 
an application-oriented unpacking these seven key shifts. Now, historically, what has informed our approach to evangelism? And we all are born into a particular time. We see examples of how the faith is shared by others. What has informed our approach to evangelism today that has bled into the 21st century and become less effective? Well, I mean, certainly some very important and good things, the Great Commission being one. We're we're all called to uh, go and make disciples. We're passionate about it. I think some of what has shaped the methodology that we can consider changing, Mm -hmm. though not the message, is that culture has changed around us. You know, historically, the U.S. has been much more of a Christianized culture, which is acceptable to go to church, to listen to a preacher, to ask the questions, you know, where do you think you're going to go when you die? Um, But increasingly, there is a hostility towards faith. There's less of an overt interest. There's certainly less of an acceptability around faith in the broader culture around us. So we have to ask what will work now in a post-Christian context, not just in a Christianized context. One of the uh, findings in the book and the report that that you produced is that 38% of practicing Christian adults say they don't have a single non-Christian friend or family member. Um, Are we connecting with with seekers and uh, non-believers? Are we excited about and committed to evangelism? What role does that play in our lack of effectiveness or connection with those who might be seekers if approached in a way that would resonate? Yeah, I think at the core of our hearts, if we're if we're truly following Christ, we know we want to share what we love. We want others to know his goodness. Over time, some of us feel uncomfortable in settings that challenge our faith. And so we stay away from those settings. Some of us feel incapable or imperfect at sharing our faith or even living our faith. So we hold back. Um, Others of us are just enjoy Christian community more than reaching out. And so there's all these different barriers, but the reality is is that evangelism is eroding in our time and we must do something about it. We are less and less um, intentionally reaching out. What's interesting though, as I pointed out in this study Millennial Christians are far more connected to friendships outside of the church than our Gen Xers, Boomers, and Elders. And so uh, even though we found out 47% of Millennial Christians believe evangelism is wrong, they're more in tune, they're more in touch with people outside the church. And so, in fact, we can look to Millennials to see what are they learning and what is the different methodology they're asking for when it comes to evangelism that we can start employing. I want to take a moment and revisit that statistic you just cited. 47% of millennial Christians believe sharing their faith is wrong. That's disturbing. It certainly reflects the culture. Uh, But talk a bit about that and what that means generally to evangelism um, by those who who love and are followers of Jesus. Yeah, we can ask the question. We can put, you know, blame on millennials. Do they even know Jesus? You know, are they? How could you possibly say that evangelism is wrong? Uh, but the deeper layers of data, and I'll just get to the punchline: ninety-four mm-hmm. percent of millennial Christians believe the best thing that can happen to anyone is they'd come to know Jesus, which is in line with the prior generation. So they're saying, "We love Jesus. We want our friends to know Jesus." It's just the how, the methodology that has been passed on 
to our generation feels like a cassette tape when our friends are listening to Spotify playlists. We need to change a couple of the methods, sort of like the Apostle Paul standing in the Athenian Areopagus who said, oh, I see there's a statue to the unknown God. And he adjusted how he communicated with that people group based on how they would receive the message of Christ. You know, so often our approach is, uh, I, I know you're an individual and you have interests and all of that, but I have such an important message. You need to just sit down and be quiet and listen to what I have to say. And it's so compelling. I'm sure you're going to respond without engaging in, as you point out, millennials do in relationship, having any interest in, and I'm exaggerating perhaps, but having any interest in the uh, the, the person to whom we're presenting the gospel. And we, we have kind of a detached approach uh, to the whole thing. What do millennial Christians know that we can learn from? And I think that's an important question because there's a great deal my generation can learn from their generation, and I suppose vice versa. Uh, it's so good. Yes, yeah, certainly a commitment to relationship. Really what we discovered um, among the non-Christians who said, you know, the most helpful, the most desirable trait I'm looking for in a Christian with whom I could explore faith with is someone who listens without judgment. The number one characteristic, the least helpful characteristic they reported in this study are Christians who have all the answers to questions about faith and Christians who are great at debating topics. And you begin to think, how have we approached evangelism in the past? Well, we try to get all the answers to the questions about faith memorized and then we get really good at debating topics. But now our culture is saying, that doesn't help. What I want is listening without judgment. Now, of course, we're going to share the message. Romans 10, 14 is as true as it ever will be. How will they know unless we tell them? We need to proclaim the truth. But culture is saying, I want conversation. And I know this is true. My son is, and is in middle school and emerging in teenage years. And I, I mean, these last six months have been eye-opening. The old sort of me preach it to him, me direct him, or even sort of like a command and control parenting style, it no longer works. I've got to draw out his thoughts. I've got to listen. I can't jump in and always give him a quick answer. If I want to influence him, I have to involve him in the conversation. And and that's ultimately the, the most important shift in my mind is shifting to conversation, not just proclamation. And, mm -hmm. and Jesus did this too. And we can unpack some more of that if we want to later in the conversation. It seems to me the model you've just described also leaves more room for the Holy Spirit to work. If I've got my formula mapped out ahead of time, even by rote, I can just go through the, the list of of uh, ideas and pass them along. But when you're in conversation and you're listening there, it seems to me a greater role for the Holy Spirit to influence how I respond, even the expression on my face, how I listen and so on. Uh, so it's a more dynamic approach, uh, I would think, um, when we are actually engaging in relationship with those who are curious uh, and may be seekers or may just have difficult questions. That's such a good point. And isn't that one of the reasons so many people may hold back from sharing our faith because we think it all depends on us. And if it all depends mm -hmm. on us, then we're in trouble. <laughs> but <laughs> it really doesn't all depend on us. The, the Holy Spirit is is truly the greatest evangelist and is doing something in someone's heart and life. And rather than us sort of bringing the hammer of truth and pounding it from the outside, we can notice where's the Holy Spirit at work. We can help that person see 
where the spirit of God is at work in their journey. And we can, we can trust in the work of the spirit. The other, the other thing that listening does is it it shows love and Mm -hmm. we need that kind of love in a um, polarized inflamed cultural moment right now. Professor David Augsburger says that being heard is so close to being loved that to the average person, it's indistinguishable. Mm. And I know that that concept is true in my family life, in my friends' lives. When someone is struggling, what do they want? They just want to be heard. And that shows love. And if it is true that some people have wounds and hostility related to or perceived to be related to faith, um, the only way we're going to get through those barriers is to listen first, to show that love, to make sure that it's a safe space for someone to voice their hurt or their doubt and take that question that might be stuck in the head and then allow it to go all the way to the heart, which is where they'll make an ultimate decision. Now, in our listening approach with Alpha, we do say that Alpha is a listening-centered evangelism. We have group time. Usually, if it's not during COVID, we have a great meal. And then we watch a film series that explains the gospel gradually over 10 weeks in a very compelling way. And then we have listening-based small groups. We train the hosts and helpers, just ask good questions. But they are wrestling with the truth of the gospel. It's being proclaimed to them. Uh, And so maybe in a personal evangelism approach, we'd listen until there's enough safety in a relationship, ask someone if they'd like to study the gospel of John together, and then let them read it and share their thoughts without correction and let the Holy Spirit convert them along the way. They're, they're, they're seeing and hearing the gospel very clearly through reading scripture or through watching the Alpha film series. So we're still proclaiming, but it needs to be in the soil and context of listening. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Craig Springer. He's the executive director of Alpha USA and the author of How to Revive Evangelism, Seven Vital Shifts and How We Share Our Faith. It's a collaboration with uh, Barna and I've just lost the name, (laughs) Alpha USA. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Craig Springer. He's the author of How to Revive Evangelism, Seven Vital Shifts and How We Share Our Faith. Well, let's talk about these vital shifts that will help us be more effective at reaching uh, those in this generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think give us greater confidence that we can uh, connect with people who may be very different from ourselves uh, by understanding the culture and those uh, around us. So let's talk about these vital shifts. What are they? Well, we just talked about one in yes. a previous segment, conversation, not just proclamation. Again, we're not, we're not replacing proclamation, but we're adding to it a lot more effort and conversation. I do want to make the point, you know, Jesus asked 307 questions in the Gospels. He was asked 183, and he only directly answers eight questions. So he's almost 40 times more likely to engage in a listening-based conversation with someone than he is to just proclaim indiscriminately. And so that's the key shift is, are we asking 40 times more questions of people showing our interest in their thoughts, their lives, their stories, than we are in just picking up the hammer of our own truths? And that is, I think, you know, one of the, one of the key vital shifts, conversation, not just proclamation. I build out six others, um, hungry for more, not just hoping for many is one key shift. 
and that's really the starting point. Mm-hmm. Many many church leaders or many committed Christians say, "I want to you know reach people for Jesus. I want to. Oh, I'm hoping for many, or I want many to come back into our church. I want many to say yes to the Lord." But ultimately, as evangelists, the Lord's great hope is that we're hungry for Him, that we're pressing into Him, that every day we're waking up hungering for more of His presence in our lives and surrender in our hearts, and it's that bonfire that we create within ourselves that others are drawn to. Uh, not just a passion to go win a lot of souls, so to speak. Uh, another shift is belonging, not just welcoming. We have created a surface level welcome very effectively, I believe, in the church in America for those who aren't a part of the church. But belonging means people can go all the way to um, community experiences where they're loved and they're known they're not just sitting in the pews with anonymity, but they're woven into the fabric of a community. Um, they need that that taste of belonging before they believe. And some of the spaces we've created, some of the approaches of our lives is to keep people at a distance relationally until they fully believe. Mm-hmm. And um, this isn't the expression of scripture. You know, the Lord says, actually, um, the foreigner, treat the foreigner among you like a native born to the Hebrew people. That is a a powerful statement to say, hey, this might this person might be an outsider, even religiously, but I want you to treat them like family and draw them in. Now, of course, until they say yes to Christ, they won't fully understand or comprehend. But how can we create that sense of love and belonging while someone's on that journey before they believe uh, and there's a handful of other shifts. I don't know if you how, how you want to go through those. but Well, I do want to talk about the next one that you write about. And it's related, I think, to the one you just mentioned, and that is experience, not just explanation. And again, this is sort of an all-in approach. It's not just an assignment where, like a salesperson, you go out to the client, you make the presentation, they either uh, purchase the item or they reject the item, you go back and you move on to something else. Uh, but but incorporating relationship and community in ways that, as you pointed out, we tend to think follow a conversion rather than precede or be a part of what happens during the process of considering the faith. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. These do layer upon themselves. You know, we start with a hunger for the Lord and ourselves. We engage in listening to others. We create space for them to belong in our lives and within our churches relationally. And then experience, not just explanation, is the idea that when we think of evangelism, we might unintentionally conclude that we're just trying to get a set of doctrine, a set of doctrinal beliefs from my head to that person's head or from the scriptures to that person's head where they'll sort of sign the statement of belief or our church membership card. Now, yes, our statement of beliefs and our doctrine is very important. That's religion. That's not the relationship with the living God. We're, we're trying to invite people into an experience. Romans 1.16 says, you know, the, the, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. It doesn't say the gospel is the explanation of men for the salvation of those who believe. I'm trying to introduce people into an experience of the Lord as part of their journey. And so I believe our evangelism can be much more effective if we reintroduce an experience of the spiritual, of prayer, 
uh, came up as one of the factors in our study with Barna. Non-Christians in America report they'd be far more open to the Christian faith if, um, quotes, I had an eye-opening spiritual experience myself. So in part of the evangelistic journey, before someone says yes to Jesus and understands the resurrection and the atonement, we invite them to pray. We, we begin teaching them about prayer. We begin teaching them how to hear the voice of God. And it's an interesting thing where the Holy Spirit often shows up and unlocks someone's mind and heart to say yes to a salvation prayer when they couldn't even have done it on themselves. I mean, the scripture says that repentance itself is a gift from the Lord. Yes. And, the, and so we don't want to strip away the prayer and the spiritual component and just turn evangelism into an intellectual exchange because we want people to have that relationship with God, not just understanding of information about God. So we introduce prayer as part of the journey. One of the shifts that you write about is unity and not just uniformity. I think at this time uh, in our culture in particular, uh, diversity and unity are subjects about which people are giving a great deal of thought. Explain what you mean by that and the fact that um, equity is in, is important to unity as well. And this is as, as people come to faith, come closer to faith, uh, and recognize that we are um, called to be a family, uh, but it, within that that grouping, there is a significant amount of difference. And we tend to think believers are like me. They they think the same way I do. They hold the same perspective on theological, uh, the essentials, but other things as well. Can you talk a bit about unity and the importance of how we approach that subject uh, in terms of evangelism? Absolutely. Well, Jesus laid out a picture of how revival might come to this world in John 17. He said, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, will, they will know that I've been sent um, as you are one. And John 17, 23, I think. And he's literally saying the, the world will know of me when they see you unified, you the people of God. And so I think as I've done a lot of work in a lot of U.S. cities and, and, and other countries as well, it's interesting when people ask me, where's God most at work? And I think about it. It's always where there's networks of churches that are crossing traditional lines of separation and working together. I see it in different cities, in different counties, et cetera. And so I see it practically play out. Um, do we have differences of theology and hermeneutics, uh, interpretations of, of certain parts of scripture among different movements? Yes, we do. And yet the question is, do we need to sort all those out? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul says, when I was among you, I claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I wonder, can we unify around the gospel, the resurrection and the atonement mm -hmm. alone? If we, if we can be what I call gospel-centered unified, you know, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, the only son of God, died on the cross, raised from the dead so that we can be saved. Um, that's what we're communicating. That's, that's following the example of scripture. We don't need to sort out all the various other interpretations of doctrine beyond that if we're going to be gospel effective. So uh, we can be uniform with the tribe that we most relate to, but we, we must be unified at least around the gospel of Jesus. Yeah. And in that sense, uh, we'll have the most fruit. And and the negative is true as well. 
the more we remain um, disunified or the more we only seek uniformity with those who agree on every aspect of scripture with us, the less we'll see Jesus Christ known in our world, according to John 17. Um, and we're yeah, just about ahead. out of time, but let me ask you um, what you think the number one takeaway from how to revive evangelism uh, is, and what do you hope people will embrace as we int- attempt to effectively share the gospel and the joy of knowing Jesus in our culture at this time? We can and must share our faith, even though times are changing, and even though it seems and feels difficult. And if there's one behavior that we implement, it is, in my opinion, to become effective listeners of those who don't know Jesus. Give them space to be heard and invite them to explore some content together, like the Alpha series or again, like the Gospel of John, with a listening approach, not a corrective approach, but a listening approach, almost like you'd be walking a teenager through puberty, a listening journey approach together, and let the Holy Spirit lead them to the Lord in the end. Now, for those who are interested in Alpha, the program, which is so well done, I have to say, what's the best way for them to connect and learn more? It's very simple. Just go to alphausa.org. And it's all free. We have generous donors who invest to make these resources free for the church and for Christians like you. And you can just hit Run Alpha and you can uh, download the materials, the training materials, as well as the films, and then invite some non-Christian friends to join you on this listening journey. Yeah, just an excellent, excellent program. Craig Springer, thank you so much for the work that you do and for joining us here today to talk about your latest book. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to spend time with you. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I mentioned earlier in the program, but I think it bears repeating for those of you who join us later in the second hour. Governor Brown has extended the state of emergency for COVID until late June. Over the past two weeks, the coronavirus cases here have jumped by more than 50 percent. That's the fastest increase in COVID-19 cases in the country. Hence, the governor has extended that state of emergency until late June. The declaration legally authorizes the uh, governor's executive orders and the Oregon Health Authority's health and safety guidance uh, to be extended. And it allows uh, these orders to remain in effect. Governor Brown and OHA officials have said Oregon is in the midst of a fourth surge of COVID-19. This week, the governor announced that 15 Oregon counties will move back tomorrow to the extreme COVID-19 risk level. There have been 182,916 known cases of COVID-19 in Oregon, and the state's COVID-19 death toll is 2,001 or rather 2,400. And 90. We learned today that there were 928 new cases in the state of Oregon and one death. Um, hence the emergency, uh, state of emergency that has been extended. The full text of the governor's statement, she said, we are in the middle of the fourth surge of COVID-19 in Oregon, driven by more contagious variants of the disease. We must stop hospitalizations from spiking so we can save lives, help our nurses and doctors weather this surge, and ensure no Oregonian is denied vital health care. Tomorrow, 15 counties will move to the extreme risk level, with nine more in high-risk hospitalizations nearly doubled in the last two weeks to well over 300. At this time last year, there was so much we did not know about how to stop the spread 
of this uh, deadly disease. Now more than a year into the COVID-19 pandemic, Oregonians know the best ways to avoid spreading the infection. She went through, of course, the litany, limiting gatherings when cases are high, wearing face coverings, maintaining physical distance, staying home when sick, and most importantly, she pointed out, Uh, getting vaccinated as soon as possible. We just have to hold on for a few weeks longer. I intend to fully reopen, the governor went on to say, our economy by the end of June, and the day is approaching when my emergency orders can be eventually lifted. How quickly we get there is up to each and every one of us doing our part. Over 1.7 million Oregonians have received at least one dose of the vaccine, and over 1.2 million are fully vaccinated against this deadly disease. But the overwhelming majority of our new COVID-19 cases are from people who have not yet been vaccinated. Younger, unvaccinated Oregonians are now showing up in our hospitals with severe cases of COVID-19. More than ever, as we see in the path uh, uh, over the peak of uh, spring and the surge expected. And down the other side, we need Oregonians to step up and take on the personal responsibility to get vaccinated. Uh, One of the things that we know is that the first shot Uh, The first vaccine uh, vaccination of COVID-19 provides coverage for a period of time that apparently diminishes. And it's not until the second shot fortifies the first that you have the long term protection that we hope and are being told this vaccination should provide. Now, there are still some questions out there as to uh, whether or not new variants will uh, remain protected under the the, uh, current spate of vaccinations. Um, But they are available Getting them is a possibility uh, from 16 and up. So if you're inclined to do the vaccination, now is the time to do it. And the thought of uh, things continuing from now until June is uh, disheartening, disappointing, and frustrating. Uh, but that is what the governor has announced, and that's what will uh, will be the case. also wanted to mention that there were six earthquakes that struck the Oregon coast this morning. There was also one yesterday, but for the most part, were not felt. They were some um, uh, between 150 and 200 miles off the Oregon coast uh, following these earthquakes in the same location that one was felt Wednesday afternoon. Uh, There is no tsunami threat from any of these quakes, according to the U.S. National Tsunami Warning Center. Wednesday's 4.4 magnitude earthquake happened at about 2.38 p.m., about 182 miles Northwest of Bandon, that quake uh, was about 6.2 miles deep. And those that followed this morning uh, were on average about 5.2 magnitude of the quake. That's what I'm trying to get to. Uh, Averaged about 5.2 and took place in the early uh, hours of Thursday morning. Well, the State of the Union address delivered by President um, Biden was followed by Tim Scott, who spoke on behalf of the Republicans, the so-called Rebuttal. One of the things that's very frustrating to me, although not at all surprising, in this uh, embrace of racism, of systematic racism, and uh, the fact that you must accept that idea as absolutely um, indisputable, uh, when Tim Scott, the first African American to represent a Southern state, um, uh, spoke on behalf of the Republicans in response to the president's speech. Uh, the hue and cry over the tone that he took, refusing to embrace systematic racism, which, by the way, many African-Americans do not, including the vice president, who said she does not believe that America is racist either. However, she was not trolled on 
social media. Well, Twitter on Thursday morning blocked the Uncle Tim trending topic, which is a play on Uncle Tom, the racial slur that flooded the platform last night after the um, the speech in response to the president by Senator Tim Scott um, continued for 11 hours. Scott, who is black, declared the United States is not a racist country. Uh, it certainly does have racism in it, as does every country on the globe. But he had encountered racism in his life um, himself. Some of it, he said, came from the left in the form of being called an Uncle Tom, a derogatory fra- phrase for blacks who are viewed as too deferential. Uh, I get called Uncle Tom and the N-word by progressives, by liberals, Scott said during his speech. After his rebuttal, Uncle Tim appeared on Twitter's trending topics as a uh, more and more tweets relayed the racially charged play on his name. Well, the Twitter spokesperson said that Thursday morning the company is blocking the phrase from appearing in trends, uh, but they waited a very long time to do that. A Twitter spokesperson said that Thursday morning that the company is blocking the phrase. Uh, this is in line with our policies on trends, uh, noting that the company wants trends to promote healthy conversations on Twitter, and it apparently took them many hours to determine that this was not a healthy expression or conversation this means that at times we may not allow or may temporarily prevent content from appearing in trends uh, while uh, until more context is available the spokesperson said this includes tens that trends rather that violate uh, the twitter rules well twitter explained uh, that they are determined by an algorithm and by default are tailored for you based on who you follow your interests and your location The algorithm identifies topics that are popular now rather than topics that have been popular for a while or on a daily basis. When asked uh, why it took so long to block a phrase that violated its policies, the company declined to expand on its statement. Hmm, that's curious. Well, the speech was well-received on the right with some commentators saying he had improved his political standing in a notoriously difficult speech to give. Well, during that speech, uh, Senator Scott took aim at race relations, corporate cancel culture, and the politics of division. Many people hold the same views but are afraid to express them because one is not permitted to express oneself these days without paying a very high cost. It's backward to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination, and it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debate in the present, he said. The only black Republican senator, Scott, has talked openly about his experience being targeted by police, including getting pulled over seven times in one year. Now he's the leading GOP effort, or rather leading the effort, to pass police reform legislation in the wake of George Floyd's death. And that's been dismissed because, of course, he's a Republican. I've experienced the pain of discrimination, Scott said. He called out to Democrats for using the filibuster last year to block his police reform bill. And then this year, when they were in power, claiming the filibuster needs to be abolished because it's a Jim Crow relic. Well, the same filibuster that the Democrats used to kill my police reform bill last year has not suddenly become a racist, or rather has now suddenly become a racist uh, relic, Scott said in defending his Senate 60-vote requirement to advance most legislation. Race is not a political weapon to settle every issue uh, the way one side wants, he went on to say. Well, during his 15-minute rebuttal, uh, Scott, a star in the Republican Party, sought to strike an optimistic tone about the progress of America saying his grandfather, his 94 years, saw his family go from cotton to Congress in one lifetime. Scott, 55, has been a strong proponent of school choice to help children in underserved communities have a better chance for success. And he said the coronavirus pandemic has revealed the clearest case for school choice in our lifetimes. 
as many public schools are still closed and private religious schools have reopened. He authored the Opportunity Zones provision in President Trump's uh, tax cut plan to attract new investments in distressed zip codes, and he credited the GOP tax and jobs plan under Trump for establishing the most inclusive economy in his lifetime prior to the coronavirus pandemic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, James Blend informs me that I've gone a little long on several of the segments in this hour, so I just have a couple of minutes to uh, wrap up this portion of the program. I would encourage you uh, to continue to follow what's happening in Washington uh, for accuracy in terms of the amount of money that's being proposed to be sent and whether or not the proposals being made will actually accomplish the goals being touted. I'm very concerned about the broadening of the federal government. I'm not at all surprised. This is precisely what um, President Biden as a candidate and the Democrats uh, promised they would do. Uh, My concern is that it will weaken the country and certainly the family and many of our institutions along the way, small business uh, being among them. So continue to follow the details uh, to their logical conclusion to determine whether or not what's being said is accurate and will lead to the conclusions, uh, favorable or not, uh, that are being touted. Also want to remind you that tomorrow, being Friday, we try to spend some time in the program taking a look at the lighter side of the news. We will, at the top of each hour, uh, or at least the top of the first hour, we'll provide a look at uh, headline news, take a look at the um, lighter side of the news, and then we'll share the Christian outlook. Uh, I had the opportunity to host this week, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Some great content from some of the national hosts, Salem Media national hosts from across across the country, uh, interviewing some great guests or talking about some of the trending issues. So that will be in the second hour of tomorrow's program. But as usual, we'll spend some time also looking at the lighter side of the news. So I hope you'll join us. want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And I'd like to thank you, of course, for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night and join us tomorrow if you can. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.